Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a uh, family. Number one, uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. Welcome to episode 13. Hometown is a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the refugee resettlement and welcome ministry of the Episcopal Church. Learn more about our work on our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together to read all of Luke and Acts throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at goodbookclub.org. Find them on Facebook, The Good Book Club. The Good Book Club readings for this week are Acts 16.16 through Acts 21.26. This week's reflection comes from the Reverend Gay Clark Jennings, President of the House of Deputies of the Episcopal Church. President Jennings was elected President of the House of Deputies by her peers at the 77th General Convention of the Episcopal Church in 2012, and at the 78th General Convention in 2015, she was re-elected by acclamation. She is the first ordained woman to hold the position. As President, she is committed to fostering a new generation of leaders in the Episcopal Church and encouraging the Church's work for justice through the actions of General Convention and the work of Episcopalians throughout the Church. She works closely with the elected and appointed leaders who serve the church between conventions, with more than 850 members of the House of Deputies, and with the presiding bishop and other church leaders. We hope you enjoy this week's reflection. One day in Philippi, the Apostle Paul and his fellow missionary Silas got thrown in jail. They had ordered the spirit of divination to leave a young enslaved woman, and as a result, her owner's lucrative fortune-telling business went belly-up. The authorities sided with the rich and powerful men, as authorities are inclined to do, and that was it for our heroes. In jail, Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns until an earthquake opened up the door. But instead of running away, they comforted the guard, who was ashamed. And then they baptized him and his entire family and went over to his house for a middle-of-the-night dinner party. Paul and Silas call on God. God's justice is done, and everyone eats. In the morning, the police come by with a message from the magistrates that the prisoner should be let go, but Paul is angry. They have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. Now they're going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Paul leans on his status as a citizen. And it works. Paul and Silas call on the empire. The empire's justice is done. And they go on their way with an apology in hand. Today in the United States, we are throwing into prison men and women who are, like Paul and Silas, uncondemned. But when we detain refugees and immigrants who have committed no crime but violating immigration law, they cannot call on the empire. The empire's justice is not for them because they are not citizens. 
especially now those of us who are both Christians and U.S. citizens, cannot take the privilege of our citizenship for granted, but we can pray and put our prayer into action by raising our voices and votes in support of just policies and humane treatment for our refugee and immigrant sisters and brothers. We might not cause earthquakes that open the doors of jail cells, but then again, we just might. So I really like the call to action in President Jennings' reflection. You know, it really, um, it made me think of the important work that the uh, Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations does and the power of having strong advocates and allies around this issue. And I mm -hmm. think that, you know, the church must always stand up for what's right and just. And I don't think that we need to look any further than the baptismal covenant for direction on who we're called to be in this world for one another. What did you think about it, Allison? Oh, I agree with you, Kendall, and I'm thinking of the times in, you know, the church's past where we have stood sometimes on the wrong side of history. I don't know if listeners are aware of work like Traces of the Trade, which was a documentary made by an Episcopal family um, who are from Rhode Island, go back generations, bishops and priests in the Diocese of Rhode Island, but this family was also one of the largest slaveholders in our nation's history. Um, so I think what's so important about the church is that not only do we continually seek um, and strive for justice in our own time, but part of the work of seeking justice is telling the truth. And there's important work of truth telling being done across the church. I mentioned Traces of the Trade as an example, but folks all across the church are looking on our history with new eyes and with eyes that are seeking justice and healing. Um, in light of some very painful parts of our history as a church. So I think you're, you're spot on, Kendall. Um, you know, President Jennings' reflection calls us to, to advocacy and to be allies around this issue, but doing advocacy and being allies means that we have to be honest. We have to look at the harder parts of our history and we have to face it with an eye for justice and with a heart of healing. Listeners, last week we provided background on Bhutan in preparation for today's conversation with Tara Dungana. Tara left behind everything in his homeland at the age of 10 as a result of the ethnic cleansing effort of the then king of his country. Tara lived in a refugee camp in Nepal for 20 years before coming to the United States in February of 2009 through the Refugee Resettlement Program. Tara lives in Columbus, Ohio with his wife, who is a full-time nursing student, and their two small children. Tara works for Community Refugee and Immigration Services, managing the ESL and Employment Program, which helps refugees gain employment and self-sufficiency as soon as possible. He also owns a restaurant, works in real estate. He's just amazing, and he recently became a U.S. citizen in December of 2017. I just have to say how impressed I am with Tara for both his kindness and generosity of spirit, but also how hard he works with <laughs> yeah. all of his various ventures and his involvement with the community. And I feel really blessed um, to have met him last year on our visit to Ohio. He's, he's amazing. And I wish that, I wish I had just an, an ounce of the energy that he has and the love of life. And he's, he's simply wonderful. So we're so excited listeners to introduce you to Tara. 
We are excited and honored to have with us today Tara Dungana, the Program Manager for Employment and ESOL Services for Community Refugee and Immigration Services in Columbus, Ohio. Tara also came to the United States as a refugee from Bhutan in 2009. Thank you so much for being with us, Tara. You're welcome. You've shared a little bit with Allison and myself about um, leaving Bhutan overnight at the age of 10, leaving everything behind, um, all of your family's possessions as a result of the ethnic cleansing that was happening at the time. And I'm curious what memories of your home you have from that time being such a small child um, and leaving. I'm Tara Dungana, again, a former refugee from Bhutan. Uh, in the United States since 2009 through the resettlement program. Uh, can, can remember very well the day that we walked out of home, uh, walking out of home not knowing where we were going. And it's kind of an overnight walking out because there was always a security threat. So uh, if, you, if I can quickly tell, the army were deployed in the, uh, in the villages. So we were risking walking out at the same time, risking our life. Uh, if these armies were to find out on our way, anything could happen. So that's, that's kind of a painful experience uh, in that early childhood. Do you have any siblings, Tara? I do, I do. I am I'm the second eldest from the top. And uh, including me, we are seven. So the youngest uh, was as old as few months in my mother's lab when that thing was happening to my family. And on top of that, I had grandparents also who were elderly. So uh, all walking out and that walk was almost like five to seven hours to go to the nearest uh, safer place, I guess. Can you explain a little bit for our listeners about um, the nation of Bhutan and what was happening there that caused your family to have to flee? Bhutan is a tiny little kingdom in between two big borders, uh, China and India. Uh, very, very small. It's, it's the total land area is 47,000 square uh, kilometers. Then now it's shrinking. Uh, there are political reasons to that. I don't want to go there. But it's, it's uh, our, our generation had been to the country. The history says that the first family from Nepal went to Bhutan in 1624, even before the king's group came from north. So the king's group has come from Tibet. That's, that's in the north. And our families uh, migrated to Bhutan from the southern side of the country, from Nepal in 1624. So that was, I, I believe that was just an economic migration then. People were moving from one part of the country to another and place to another. And Bhutan then was kind of a completely in, in unlivable land. Uh, so families were moving in and starting to open up the forest and, and starting everything anew. So that's, that, that was what was happening. And to make a long story short, uh, King does not, he does not speak the language I do. He's from a different culture. And 
maybe he's, he felt that that kind of political threat because uh, the southern border of Bhutan is open to India and the northern border is completely sealed. So there is no exposure from the north to China. And this southern belt of the country has been completely inhabited by the Nepali families. So, uh, and there were many changes happening politically in northern part of India and in Nepal too. And maybe he has, he has felt some sort of uh, power trade. So he started that ethnic cleansing uh, policy and uh, started deploying armies into the villages that were there. And the armies were in lack of the right vocab monster who could, who could, who don't have humanly feeling and can do anything in the villages. So what happened after your family was forced to flee? We walked out, uh, we walked out to the, to the nearest uh, city that I think my father felt was safer for the family to go and stayed there for like half of a day and he could hire a pickup truck and we, we went out of the border uh, in that pickup truck uh, that, that took us another two to three hours to get out of the country border to the nearest Indian territory. And we lived there for like a few days, uh, lived with nothing because there was nothing uh, the family had carried. And uh, again, there are families, Nepali families in Northern India, the Assam state, and that's where we went. So those Nepali families supported uh, our family, and it's not my family only. There were over over 50, 60 families there uh, at a time, and and then next morning from nowhere comes a big trailer kind of truck, and then they, they just boarded us on on those trailers, and it's like two days kind of drive on those trailers uh, through the Indian border to Nepal, and that's where they just dropped us in, in Nepal's border and, and Nepal helped us set up the refugee camps. Can you talk about what life was like? You were, I mean, you were a young child when your family fled and a young child when you made it to Nepal and to the refugee camps. Can you talk about life as a child growing up there and what that was like? I was already sick uh, as a young child to remember everything, I guess. Uh, I. I could very well remember that there was a high fever in my body when I was there in the uh, Nepalese border uh, due to all this long uh, travel, not having good food to eat, I guess, and, and proper water to drink and lack of medicine because there were no help anywhere in between. So, uh, and again, like uh, just to make clear that uh, we were the first families kind of thing, the first wimp of the families arriving in Nepal. So there were no refugee camps set up before for us to go. So we kind of somehow, I don't know how that happened, but there were, there were this uh, uh, plastic kind of roof, what's called a uh, tripoling given to us for, for every families there. And we started making uh, makeshift out of that and, and started living there. And I would say this, uh, the, uh, the early days were so painful. We could see up to, up to 50, 60 dead bodies, primarily children going off that area, that, that refugee camp every day because of, because of typhoid, cholera, no proper place to go for uh, uh, whatever you have to do every day, every morning. Uh, 
to, to walk to the nearest uh, forest kind of thing in between the bush and do it. And then in the evening, uh, there would be a westerly wind blowing all those fishes back to your home. And you can imagine how quickly you survive all that. So, so lucky to survive all that epidemic and be here today. I'm curious because you spent so many years in a refugee camp, if there was a feeling all along for you as a child and, and young adulthood in the refugee camp, a feeling that eventually one day you would get out, that you knew that you would get out of the camp and live a different life, or if there was a feeling that this was your life, that this was your home. It, uh, this is politically, there were, there were bilateral meetings between the government of uh, Bhutan and Nepal. Nepal always want us to go back in a respected way. Uh, the king would take us back because that's what Nepal fought for us for all the time we were there. And uh, there were over 22 bilateral talks in, in between those uh, 18 to 20 years time. Uh, so there was something happening, but again, the hope was just fading away because uh, think about like one year, two years, eight years, 10, 15, and 20 years, nothing happened, right? And so as a person, I was living every day a hopeless life in the refugee camp, not knowing what future has for me, right? It's, it's like the hope was almost gone, like maybe this is, this is my life, uh, rest of my life in the refugee So, yeah. It's such a painful story and we're so grateful for you sharing it with us. Um, so in the American context, we understand how the refugee resettlement process works from our side, but can you tell us about what, what the process was like for you? How, how was it that you came to be resettled? Can you talk about that? Sure, uh, it's it's such an excitement when when that announcement came in the refugee camp, like oh, we can go to the Western countries now. For and and personally for me, I, I the the refugee tag that was in my forehead as a refugee of no fault of my own, I guess, like uh, because I did nothing wrong anywhere, right? And I have to I have to I have to live that life. That's that's such a painful thing to happen in anybody's life. So. Uh, any day I was imagining like, man, when is that day that comes so that I can walk out permanently from this confined area. A refugee camp in Nepal is like uh, kind of a confinement center because there are, there are guards, uh, Nepali security guards in every, every exit and entry and you are not allowed to walk out. So uh, every day is in that confinement. So I was always thinking every morning like God give us that hope. Uh, find us a day that we can walk out from this place permanently so that I don't have to return and my family does not have to uh, stay here anymore. So when that announcement came in uh, mid-2007, like there are 10 or 8 host countries talking about uh, resettling Bhutanese refugees from, from Nepal. Oh man, okay, it's happening man. So that was such an excitement honestly. UNHCR, who the UN agency that administers the refugee camp in Nepal, uh, made that announcement. Their their representatives went to the refugee camps and had that uh, public meeting, saying like, 
this option is coming. And, and let me tell you this also in that background. Nepal was going through a revolution at the same time, within this, this long time of our history stay and such a political changes were happening. There was a civil war going on. A, a, a political party raised arm against it, its government and public, people killing among themselves. So uh, uh, there was such a big frustration in the refugee camp and the youths were kind of like, oh, maybe this is the thing we have to do, right? For, to go back to the country also. So there was a, I want to say that there was a strong pushback against resettlement option early on in the refugee camp because of that concept and ideation, I guess. Uh, my, when the resettlement option came, you have to submit an intent form uh, saying that you want, you are willingly wanting to be resettled to the UNHCR office. So my form was the first 50th form that I submitted. Uh, so, and it was through the back door because I could not go publicly and collect the form and sign and submit, though I was very interested, right? Because of that pushback, I, I kind of mentioned earlier. So uh, that was uh, just late 2007 and I got resettled in 2009. So meaning like it took over two years for me to go through process. And there, there, there are some personal things that I did myself, like, Meaning, like, good thing I got married uh, when my my resettlement process started. So my my process was kind of halfway, and I got married to my current wife, and her process was almost at the top. So all just bounced back to zero now because it's a different case, and and we restarted the process. So that's that's why it took me longer. But in an average, every every refugee family process would take me to before, before the pandemic comes in the resettlement process. And who all um, of your family came over when you were resettled? You and your wife and who yeah, else? My wife, we have newly married uh, couple, uh, uh, all excitement, all energy now, right? And uh, after, after five, six months, my family joined. So meaning like I have all seven siblings are in U.S. now, uh, all in Ohio. Uh, my youngest sister and our family is in another city in Akron. They were they were originally resettled in uh, Tucson, Arizona, and they, they recently moved to Ohio. And my all brothers are in Columbus. Everyone has bought home. It's only me who is living in the apartment right now. And my parents live with one one of my my siblings. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm really, um, I'm really impressed with your resilience and, you know, I'm looking at the fact that you are doing this wonderful work for Chris and you're running a restaurant and you're doing real estate work. You're really successful. And I'm really curious what your experience has been in the United States, um, working in business and how people have treated you. There, there are some, this is what it is for a refugee, I think, uh, to navigate the system uh, is kind of challenging, right? Uh, because we come from either different system or no system at all. In US, uh, there is a system that is a pathway for everything you want to do, right? So 
as a refugee, yeah, there are resettlement agencies who would guide you every day with employment and everything. But when you have that uh, business idea and skills, uh, there is less of a help that's available. But there is energy. And, and when that energy drives you, nothing comes on your way. You can just knock out everything. And, and that's good about, about US, I guess, uh, because other countries, I don't think, have that privileges for any, any refugees or immigrants. Like, meaning like, see, I came to US in 2009, and I'm taking my uh, naturalization oath ceremony next week, uh, December 5th, right? So I, I, I kind of just uh, passed that, like I could, I could have done that in when I was five years here, I'm now nine years here. So meaning that that was, that was not kind of a primary need for me to do anything. So meaning like as a refugee also, and as a, as a green cat holder, I could do everything other than go vote. So that's, that's such a good thing in the US. And yes, I do, I do business. Uh, I started business in 2011, uh, a grocery store then and sold it after two years, and now in a restaurant business. So uh, business runs in my blood. I, I went to school, business school in Nepal, and uh, meaning like I was trained in business. But this this kind of opportunity, like sky is your limit here in US, is such a driving force uh, behind. Like you can do anything if you, if you want to. So, uh, just, uh, I don't want to be hero and I'm no different than anybody else. But just, just sharing my example, like I have two kids, both born here. My wife is currently in a, a full-time nursing school. I, I work full-time for Chris because this is my passion. I want to help refugees uh, who are newly arriving and do a business also. And I, I, I'm very involved with the community too. We have uh, uh, communities uh, uh, that is registered 501c3. Uh, we call it Miss Nepali Community of Columbus, and uh, I've been I'm being the founder of that that uh, community, uh, the 501c3 organization, and is working always for that community. And now I'm going back to go to chair the the board uh, from next month, from January. So this is all possible because uh, U.S. has given me that hope and opportunity to do this. Otherwise, I would be still a, a hopeless refugee living a very, very miserable life in a refugee camp today if, if the resettlement option was not available to me. And I, I, would, I would say that because uh, with the current context and everything, uh, refugees don't have choices. They don't have option. See why why refugee becomes a refugee? They they flee the 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 uh, war going on. They are looking always for peace. That's why they run run out. It's it's not easy to leave behind everything that you own, your home, your your land, and run away. Uh, that's that's not easy, right? And and. You see, in my context, my parents, my father did that just for the sake of everyone's life in the family, right? For the safety of everyone's life in the family. So, so this is, I think, uh, 
as a, as a bigger community, we understand that perspective uh, that refugees have no choices uh, if they are left behind. That's, that's one thing. Another thing I would like to point out is, uh, as far as I know, U.S. is the biggest donor for the U.N. agency, right? For uh, maintaining the refugees in the refugee camp, or, or just helping the refugee camp set up and run. So, uh, in in my context, in my example, I lived that life for twenty years, meaning like I lived with that donation, right? So, how much of dollar amount was spent within that twenty years just to keep me keep keep my life upward and living in the refugee camp. Should I have that option? My family has that option to come to the third country through resettlement process early on. How much should I have contributed back to the local economy and, and, and the community, right? So it's, it's like economically, I think keeping refugees in the refugee camp uh, is not a good thing. Well, that point that you just made, Tara, is so important for people to hear because arguments are made, as, as you know, that it is, quote unquote, cheaper to keep refugees in camps than it is to resettle them. But is the point you just made is that it, it breeds hopelessness and yeah. how much more you would have been able to one, you do so much now. When we met you and we went to your restaurant and we learned about your life, I thought, I don't even have an eighth of the energy that Tara does for all that he does for his community. Um, but how much more you might have been able to do had you been given the hope of resettlement earlier? It would definitely, again, uh, like uh, it's at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters when it comes to business and investment and uh, uh, right uh, profit or non-profit or whatever it is you would like to see a return on, on your investment so a donation is also an investment somebody is making out of their pocket right so uh, yeah uh, uh, and, and see when when refugees refugees when they when they when they become refugee they, they lose that hope in their life right uh, so nobody willingly goes to a refugee camp and becomes a refugee giving them that hope uh, it's it's such a uh, uh, such a power you are giving to anybody right and uh, see as a, as a refugee again as a former refugee and doing this job every day here uh, working within the Chris policy and uh, our mission uh, we want every families that we resettle go out of the public welfare system as immediately as possible. That's, that's, that's what drives us here every day uh, through employment. So uh, I'm so proud of what I do at Chris today and I'm so thankful to my employer, uh, Angela Plummer especially, uh, for me letting do this job. And, and that's, that's the message behind. It's not simply getting somebody a job. We have, we have that that uh, uh, kind of a mission that we want this family be successful and move out of that that welfare system, move out of that poverty, right, and and uh, help them 
gain self-sufficiency as immediately as possible. And, and that happens in a refugee families because uh, refugees family are very composite. Uh, if you go and visit them, they at least three generations in a family and everybody working, saving money uh, and, and making investment. Uh, see the example of these refugees in, in the US. Uh, over 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 fifty percent of the resettled families have already been homeowners, right? They have bought homes. We have over five hundred families in Columbus, Ohio, that that are homeowners already, and again uh, acquiring that uh, citizenship, meaning like they want to stay here, they want to work, they want to contribute, they want to be contributing member of the society, they want to pay back for for that uh, country that has given hope, right? Uh, that has given hope for their life. So, yeah. I'm curious what um, you wish people knew about refugees. Uh, this is one thing. Uh, this is my recent realization also. Uh, refugees are lumped up with immigrants, which is wrong uh, as, a, as a refugee. Uh, coming through a refugee experience. Because again, uh, I would go back like, refugees have no option, right? So they have to take it, whatever comes available. Meaning like, uh, uh, I didn't know uh, US before. I, I heard of US, but I didn't know exactly what US is, how, how the country is, and everything while living a refugee life. And the forget, uh, let alone Columbus, Ohio, right? So when the resettlement option came, it, it was no choice for me to come to US. First of all, like I mentioned previously, all I wanted that time was like, get out of this refugee camp as immediately as I could, permanently, right? So uh, that was there, that was a driving force behind, but uh, where do I go was not an option, right? So uh, uh, whereas immigrant just, move mostly because of their choices they make, right? Mostly for educational and economic opportunities. So uh, that's not the case with refugees. Uh, again, it don't want to generalize because that there could be some uh, refugee families who could go back to the country. But in our context, in Vietnamese refugees context, that's not available. And, and if you are asking me, and if I be honest, I don't want to go back to Bhutan because that's the country that tried to eliminate my history, my, my family's history. So why, why should I think about that country when there is another country giving me a new life, new hope, new opportunity, right? So I would rather uh, stay focused and uh, uh, want to be uh, helpful or be a contributing member here to the country that has given me life and all. When I, when I hear you speaking about the hope that America has given you and what your experience has been like as a newcomer, I'm struck to realize that, so I was born in this country and there's a saying that fish <laughs> don't know that they're wet. You know, a fish doesn't realize it's living in water. It just lives in water. And so in listening to you, I realize I don't fully understand what it means to live in a country of political stability and opportunity because this is the water I, I swim in. So I've never, I've never been in another context where I can understand the water 
Mm -hmm. so can you, you explain what you wish people knew about refugees. Could you tell me as an American, tell our listeners as Americans, what you wish we knew about America that you know that we don't understand? Uh, I, I think, I think the foundation, uh, how America is, is uh, built up, the basic foundation, like America is a country of uh, opportunity, right? America is a country of immigrants because uh, at some point of time, we came from somewhere. Uh, one another thing is, uh, I would like to bring that perspective, how America is seen in that part of the, the continent that I come from. It's, it's seen as a, a country of opportunity, again, where people just believe uh, in Nepal, people die to come to America. It's such a, such a good impression because, uh, because of what? Uh, because people believe that America is very receptive to any culture, any, any faith, any religion, any custom, right? Uh, people believe that America is open to, towards any uh, people, people of color, people of, uh, of any, any uh, uh, belief. They always see like America is economically and politically very stable country. So uh, that's, that's what matters at the end of the day for a family when it, when it comes to family, right? You want your family live in a stable condition, economically, opportunity-wise, and, and religiously too, because at home you want to feel safe that you can practice what you, can, what you believe in, right? That's, see, uh, uh, we came back to Nepal in, in a kind of understanding, right? Our generations went from Nepal to Bhutan, and then we came back to Nepal. But all those 20 years of living in Nepal is a painful experience every day. Uh, it's like homecoming for us, in other words, right? You, you are coming back to Nepal, you are, you speak Nepali language, you are from the same culture, but no, it's like, it's like you, you are living either in an ocean or a country that's, that does not belong to you anywhere, nowhere in your life. So that's, that's kind of environment other countries have, not to blame on one particular country because if Nepal was not there to, to at least let us live a refugee camp, then the Bhutanese Nepali families would not be here today, any family, right? crossed in between somewhere. So I, I just uh, respect that part of Nepal. But uh, when it comes to a daily life and daily experience, no, it's always a painful day. There. So I see uh, 20 years was like over 200 years, even 20 years. I, I'm, I have already lived half of that many years in the US. And I still believe like I came to U.S. yesterday. And I, I, I feel like, and I talked about that to my, to my friends in, in the group, like, man, it's when, it, when your life becomes easy and when you feel that you belong to this country, it, the life becomes so easy, right? And it passes away so, so quickly. Your children are certainly going to experience a much different childhood than you. Um, having been born here and not experiencing 
all the things you experienced and I'm curious what your hopes are for them. Oh, uh, I have a seven year old daughter, right? Did you see when you came last night? No, right? I was alone by myself. Oh, so, so, uh, uh, so very open and talkative. See, if, I, if she is with me in any kind of this kind of conversation, she goes, she goes by herself, she puts me aside and that. Very sensitive, very sensitive on, on everything that's happening, okay? For example, my parents are going to go on a pilgrimage next summer to India and Nepal. Uh, and when we started talking about that, uh, one evening she comes from school and says, Dad, why are grandparents doing that? And I'm like, because that's what they want to do in their life. Uh, and she's like, no, 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 Nepal is not safe. India is not safe. So how can they go there, right? So uh, very sensitive, okay? And if you ask her, what do you want to be in your life? She says, either a president or a pediatrician. So that hope is there early on. I never had that hope. I don't have a hope to be a president of this country. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. She'll do it too. I believe in her. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. She's, she's very sensitive and uh, she's gifted also. So it's, it's hard on me and my wife as an immigrant family, a family new to the country, not knowing how to feed her with her development every day, with everything, it's, it's kind of a challenge she has posed on, on us as parents. So <laughs> we are learning every day. <laughs> well, and you mentioned um, in our preparation for today's conversation that your wife is in school currently. What is your wife studying to do? She is, uh, she is, planning to be a registered nurse, and that's what she is training on right now. It took so long. Again, there's a history to that part. Maybe we'll, we'll talk on that in, in a different environment or different setting for how easy or difficult it is for any refugees to go back to school and uh, go back for that training they want to go. Uh, but, but again, we could do it, so anybody can do it, right? So she is in a nursing school in Columbus State Community College. Uh, that's good again. That's such a good thing that only only in one semester uh, we we are paid out of pocket. Uh, otherwise, she is uh, eligible to, through that uh, federal grant uh, for the tuition fee and everything. So so proud and thank you, America, again uh, for for that opportunity. So she wants to be a nurse. And, and the message behind that is two things. One is a uh, stable family, economically, right? Uh, she would have a career. By the way, she, she has a master's in business from, from Nepal. Yeah, so it's, it's again really stacking uh, here. Uh, and with the two kids, I'm working full time doing business. Uh, I think it's very understandable uh, about the struggle there. But yes, she is full time, uh, and she. Uh, there, there are days like uh, on Wednesday, our uh, lab starts at six a.m. And uh, every day when she comes home, it's like almost nine p.m. or ten p.m. 
So by by oh that time, by, by that time, kids are gone home. So meaning like kids cannot see their mom uh, at least two days and two nights in a week, any week. <laughs> but I I am like I'm your dad and I'm your mom and I'm your everybody. So <laughs> <laughs> for now, <laughs> you're such a. You're such a busy entrepreneur and father and leader in your community and, you know, part of a refugee resettlement organization. We just cannot thank you enough, Tara, for giving no, us time. No, thank you again. Like, see, uh, that's what I missed in my life as a refugee. I want to be engaged. I want to be very involved. I want to help my community and every other community. Uh, so that has been uh, available to me through the resettlement program. So I don't want to spend any day, any single minute of not being productive, uh, just sitting idle. Yeah, I start my day like 4.30 a.m. every day. I do yoga in the morning. That's my, my first thing uh, every day. So, and, and that's the time for for myself as a Tara right now, right? <laughs> only that one hour window I have in the morning for myself. And then getting kids ready for the school and everything, that's that's how the day starts. So happy, happy that what I'm doing, uh, it's, it's a good thing I want to do and like to do. Well, thank you so much. Yes, sure. we are humbled okay. and honored to talk to you, truly. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us this week. We're so grateful for each and every one of you who tune in. Thank you. We invite you to prayerfully support Episcopal Migration Ministries with a donation. No gift is too small and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. Our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Mawinda Ikondo. Find his music at AbrahamMawindaMusic.com. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home.